thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. We'll see you back here next week to discuss the carrier plane, which was made famous in the Vietnam conflict for flying rescue missions with a call sign named for the group Commander's Dog. (laughs) You won't want to miss that one. That's right. Sandy, Spad, call it what you want, but this week it's all about the Douglas A1 Sky Raider with a guest who flew them in Vietnam and a co-host who still flies one today. It's all here on this episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. This is episode 92. I'm your host, Vincent. And returning to help us learn all about the Sky Raider today is our previous F-86 Sabre co-host and founder of the Warbird Heritage Foundation, Mr. Paul Wood. Hello, Paul. Welcome back. Hey, Jello. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. It's been a little while since we've heard from you. In fact, I think last time, as I recall, you were dealing with a broken, what, F-86 in Ohio, I want to say? What's new since then? Yeah, we uh, we were supposed to do uh, participate in the Fourth uh, of July flyover the Capitol, and if you recall, uh, I was in a fuel stop in Ohio and had a starter generator failure, and the plane was grounded, so I missed the flyover. We subsequently were able to get a crew out. Uh, we had three guys out for two days, pulled the engine, pulled the tail, disconnected all the flight controls, fixed the problem, put it all back together. We got the airplane back to uh, Waukegan, where our home base is, and three days later, we were taping an episode of Air Warriors for the Smithsonian Channel. They're going to air that sometime before the end of the year. We're doing a special on the F-86, so we're able to get it back and get it flying again and get everything all done. So it is 100% airworthy, and I'm probably going to fly it this coming weekend. All right. Well, that sounds like fun. And it's always a bummer to miss the one event where time is critical. But then, you know, right after that, these aircraft seem to come back up and fly just fine when you don't really need them. But glad to hear that. And uh, let's see, we're going to bring you on, like I said, here as co-host, we're going to do a couple announcements. I've got some listener questions I want your help with. And then we're going to get to our feature part, the A1 Sky Raider, which you have one of, and we'll talk all about that. Uh, Let's see, for starters, the announcements. This past week, we released a blog on our website based on an article I wrote several years back on active duty. It's about the various mechanical and electrical fuses and components used to make air-to-ground bombs go boom. You can check that out on the musing section of our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. 
Also, just a friendly reminder that we have a lot of interesting Facebook groups out there. We have some for photography, some for aspiring military aircrew. We have a trading post where you can buy and sell military aviation memorabilia. We've got a ready room. Come on over and check those out. But remember to answer the questions to get in the door. We have a lot of folks that ask to be allowed in and don't answer the questions. And frankly, we don't let them in. So make a little investment there in time and we'll be happy to invite you into those Facebook groups. All right, let's see. I have another announcement about a milestone I reached earlier this week, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Paul, like I said, got a couple listener questions to cover. Are you willing to lend a hand? Absolutely. Yeah. Bring them on. All right. Well, the first is an email from Phil in Canada who asks an appropriate question in light of last week's Hurricane Hunters episode, which was a big hit. Phil asks, are there any specific actions taken for carrier pilots getting in their jets during heavy rain? Do they have to sit in soaking wet gear for hours during their mission? Can the rain that can get in while the canopy needs to be open on the deck be a risk to the seat, life support, and avionics in the cockpit? Now, Paul, we'll start with you. My guess is if it's raining too hard, maybe you don't bother or you've got shelters, but uh, how do you deal with heavy rains? Well, usually if it's raining too hard, we usually don't fly. During the air show season in the summertime, if it's raining, you know, the guests and the uh, spectators are not there, so they usually don't fly too much. Uh, We do fly in the rain occasionally. Try not to because it's hard on the paint. A lot of the airplanes that we have the paint is different than what like a Hornet might have right now, where you can actually lose the paint because of the raindrops on the leading edge, things like that. So we tend not to fly too much. Hmm. But when we do fly, we just try and get out there and get in the airplane as quickly as we can. Keep the canopy closed until you're absolutely ready to hop in. And, you know, you get a little bit of rain inside the canopy, but it usually isn't too bad. Yeah. Well, and I guess our missions are different because what you do and what the military does are slightly different, even though the aircraft were same, at least they were at various eras in history. But I can see where you would want to minimize that as much as you can. And to Phil's question for the Navy or the military, I mean, if you have shelters at base, that's great. But to his specific point about being on the carrier, I've done this. It stinks. And like you said, Paul, you pre-flight and you do your best to stay out of the elements, but it comes a point where you've got to open the canopy and jump up in there. And I have definitely sat down into wet cockpits with soaking wet gear. And it's a bummer, but it usually is no big deal other than the inconvenience of it. I believe, although I can't speak to the specifics of it, but I believe all that equipment is built with a little bit of rain intrusion in mind. So the electronics are sealed or otherwise protected. I've sat in relatively wet seats with wet consoles and displays and they all work just fine. And it is a bummer because you stay wet for quite a while as you're sitting there. And the interesting thing is sometimes you'll go from hot if you are somewhere where it's a you know a rain shower in the summer, let's say, but then when you get up to altitude where the air conditioning is working, then all that wet clothing on your body can make you very cold. So that can be a real bummer going from hot to cold, but yep, it is built for that. And uh, we just deal with the elements. So I heard though that your crew chiefs hold umbrellas for you. Is that right? <laughs> Well, you said crew chief, so you might be uh, misunderstanding the Air Force here, not the Navy, no. Yeah. (laughs) All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hi, Vincent. This is Dave George calling from Boulder, Colorado. I'm from Santa Cruz, California. I have started my flight training, and I was wondering with these high-performance jets like the F-15 and the F-18, 
what happens when a bird or any foreign object enters the intakes? I had recently listened to the MiG-29 and it sounded like they have full-on shields that block the intakes from anything getting into the intakes. In the planes I've been training in, the 172s, they have carb heat, which acts like an alternate air. Would love to hear your response and really enjoy the podcast. Thank you for everything in your, your service. Okay, thanks, Dave, from Boulder. Uh, what about you, Paul? I'm guessing this is a real issue for you dealing with FOD at different places where you go? Yeah, we have to be real careful about it. A couple of things. One is we always want to position the airplane so we're starting it into the wind, first of all. We always do FOD checks before we start. And then some of our airplanes, in particular the T2 Buckeye, for instance, its jet intakes are very low to the ground. So we have to watch that very carefully. Our uh, crews inspect the inlets and inspect the compressor blades. And a lot of times you'll find little nicks where, you know, little rocks or stones will get picked up and uh, sucked into the jets. But it's a very important inspection item, and we're very careful about it, but it does happen. Usually what happens is it creates nicks in the compressor blades, and you get maybe some imbalances that you have to blend out, things like that. Right. Yes, to your point, we always did a little mini FOD walk down in front of the aircraft, and then the fields themselves are in charge of making sure there's no debris. And some fields do a better job of it than others. And on aircraft carriers, multiple times a day, they'll have what they call a FOD walk down. They get a big line of folks, several lines sometimes, and they'll go down with their heads down. You're not supposed to talk or carry on too much, and you look for any debris that could be a problem. But to your question about the gates, if you will, on the MiG-29, Dave, you should go back and listen to that episode because as i recall air marshal hassan said that they weren't actually that great and a lot of times they created fod because of the various components as they moved and and things would get trapped in little low pressure spots and then when the doors open in they would go so i don't think that's necessarily the best solution by the sounds of it and i always say if there was a simple solution you'd see it especially on airliners because why not they have a lot to lose of course as we all do so yes fod Foreign object debris, foreign object damage, it's kind of a noun and a verb all at once, but uh, it is definitely an issue in any aircraft, I would argue, but specifically jet aircraft. All right, finally, we have an email from Billy who asks, silver wings and wings of gold. My question is when Air Force pilots do an exchange tour with the Navy, do they get carrier qualified and do they earn the Navy wings of gold? If so, can they wear them on an Air Force uniform? Likewise, if a Navy pilot transfers to a guard or reserve unit, can they still wear gold wings? Well, Billy, these are great questions and it depends as always. So we had Air Force pilots on the Top Gun staff and they came and flew Navy aircraft, but they did not carrier qualify. And And so, no, they did not earn the wings of gold. But even as I understand, the few folks that do go to deploying units and carrier qualify, they don't necessarily get Navy wings. They still wear their Air Force wings. And when they go back to their Air Force units, they just have the experiences. But the other side of this is you might remember our previous guest and guest co-host, BS, Mike Walsh, he transitioned from the Marine Corps to the Massachusetts Air National Guard. And so I put this question to him and what he told me, it was, he says, quote, I wear Air Force wings on my flight suit, but still rate my wings of gold. I don't even own an Air Force set of service dress blues, but if I did, I would wear both sets of wings. I did not have to turn in my Naval Aviator wings. So I guess it depends on your training as well as your assignment. In this case, again, BS is now a 
Air National Guard pilot. So he rates the Air Force wings, but he still, because of his past experiences, could wear his Naval Aviator wings on his dress uniform. All right. Thanks, Billy, Dave, and Phil for the great questions and everyone else who has submitted questions. We've got more lined up for next week. We'll always try to cover a few of those. Do appreciate the great questions. All right, let's transition to the feature segment now, an interview on the Douglas A1 Sky Raider. Now, first off, either my guest George or I must have had a squeaky chair that day because you'll hear a little bit of those noises in the discussion, particularly more as the discussion goes on. But I know you forgive us for our various audio sins. Paul, I know you had a chance to listen to the interview. Any thoughts before we all listen to it together? First of all, I met George before, or I'd seen him speak before. The guy's an incredible guy. And when you think about his experiences flying all these different airframes, as you know, Jello, you know, if you're in the Navy or in the Air Force, you might get experience on maybe three or maybe four airframes. You know, you might fly the T6 and then the Hawk and then the Hornet or Super Hornet, something like that. This guy has flown so many different airframes that it's really incredible. And the stick and rudder skills are probably fairly similar, but when you think about all the systems and the procedures and the emergency procedures and the memory items and all those sorts of things. Not only is this guy a great hero from his experience in Vietnam, he must have an incredibly large brain because there's there's a lot of stuff to remember there. Oh, no doubt about it. Well, he'll tell us in a moment that he was a test pilot, both in the Air Force and afterwards in the civilian sector. So tell you what, let's let George Merritt take it away and we'll meet back here on the other side, Paul. Great. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by George Merritt. He's a former captain in the Air Force because he is going to help me learn all about one of my childhood favorite aircraft, the A-1 Sky Raider. George, how are you doing today, sir? Doing fine. Thanks for contacting me. Oh, you're quite welcome. So this is an aircraft, like I said, I'm really excited about, and you've got a bit of experience in it, right? Yeah, I flew combat uh, in Vietnam in the Sky Raider, about 188 <laughs> combat missions and uh, a little over 600 hours. Holy smokes. And you live in Central California, not far from where I grew up, and so I feel certain kinship with you there, and I'm sure we will after another mm-hmm. 45 minutes or so of discussion. I, I should mention, just for yours and my sake, although the listener doesn't know any better, that we've already been the, at this for about 30 minutes trying to get our technology figured out, but if you're ready, we'll jump right in. I'm ready. Okay, great. Well, if you're familiar with the show at all, you know that it's all about the airplane, but it's really about the people. And we'd like to get to know you first, George. So can you tell us where you're from? Where did you go to school? What did you do in the Air Force and after? And what are you doing now? Okay, well, a quickie is uh, I uh, went through uh, college in Air Force ROTC, you know, became a second lieutenant in the reserves when I graduated, got called up about six months later, went through flying school, typical Texas, Georgia, back to Texas, back to Georgia, ended <laughs> up, uh, I got my wings in 1959. I was in a fighter squadron up in the Bay Area, F-101B Voodoo, flew there for four years as an interceptor pilot, applied for the Air Force Test Pilot School and got accepted in 1964. Chuck Yeager was the commandant of the school. It was uh, called ARPS, Aerospace Research Pilot School, because Chuck Yeager wanted the Air Force to have their own manned space program. They had Dinosaur, which got canceled just before I got there, and Mole got canceled afterwards. So Air Force never had one. Anyhow, when I graduated, went down to a fighter test at Edwards, the top job in the Air Force as a junior captain. I got to do early testing of the F-111, the F-4, 
got to fly the F-104, the F-5, a whole batch of, of aircraft. Wow. And then I got called to go to Southeast Asia. I was married. I had a son that was about three and another one that was six. And they said, you're going to war as a Sandy rescue pilot. Off I went to war. Oh, boy. All right. So we've already heard that you had uh, about 600 hours and a bunch of missions flying the A-1. Uh, what happened after that? Well, uh, the mission, it was the 602nd Fighter Squadron stationed in Udorn, Thailand, way up there on the north side of Thailand. We were the only propeller fighter squadron in the Air Force. It was actually a 602nd Fighter Squadron with a C after there for commando. We were kind of like Terry and the Pirates at that time period. Our, we had two missions. One was strike missions up in northern Laos using the call sign Firefly, and then rescue missions with the name of Sandy. That was our uh, mission. So the primary one, the one that everybody hears about, of course, is the rescue mission. So we had four airplanes that were on rescue alert, ready to be scrambled out, and then two Jolly Greens. There was a Jolly Green squadron with, actually, they had HH-53 at Udorn and HH-3s at Nakhon Phnom. So they would uh, have two of them on alert and be ready to go if somebody gets shot down. Okay. We'll get back to some of the details here, but after your tour there, you decided to leave the Air Force at some point? Uh, yes, after my tour was up, I guess, you know, while the mission was good in rescuing people because it improved the morale of everybody flying, knowing that if you get shot down, we're going to come out after you. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it took two, three days, but generally we're pretty successful. But we took a high toll. We, uh, In my squadron, in the one year that I was there, 12 guys were killed. Two were burned so bad they were sent home. One guy on my rescue, first rescue mission, my lead, gets shot down, evaded for three days, captured and became a POW. And one of the guys I went over with was uh, hit badly on a rescue mission, and but still got his plane back and got the Medal of Honor. And we lost 26 airplanes in one squadron in one year. So it was a really, really tough, tough year. It was a great mission, but the war wasn't going anyplace. So I was still bombing about the same place when I left that I arrived. So <laughs> the uh, Air Force wanted to send me back to Hurlburt and be an A-1 instructor. And I thought, that's probably the last thing I want to do. It's, it's a good airplane to fly in combat. Who wants to be an instructor in an airplane that's not going to last too long? I mean, once the war's over it ever gets over, then certainly we don't need A-1. So I had finished my obligated service for the Air Force. And so I, I was a regular officer, but I decided to get out of the service and see if I could get a test pilot job. So to make it short, I um, had several interview trips when I got back, took a job with Hughes Aircraft Company in Los Angeles. I worked with them for 20 years and retired and so I got to fly the F-14 Tomcat and F-4. I was the F-15 project pilot. Got to fly uh, Maverick missiles on F-4s. Got to do a early work on the stealth uh, bomber radar, which we had. So all high-technology, standoff, high-reliability weapon systems for the Cold War, which actually, of course, never got hot. So it ended up a lot of our weapons were used in the Gulf War and worked out extremely well. Wow. And even wrote a book about it called Testing Death, uh, Hughes Aircraft Company Test Pilots and Cold War Weaponry. And got uh, published hardcover in 2006. 
Okay. Well, I want to know about that and we might save that to the end because that way we can tell people where to go find it. But boy, you are a wealth of experience, a lot of different aircraft. I was trying to write them down to keep up, but we might have to invite you back to the show, George, because we've got a century series coming up in 2021 where we hope to go through episode 101, for example, would be on the F-101. So Mm -hmm. maybe we'll have to invite you back to help us understand the voodoo, but boy, that is quite the experience. And all right. So at some point, did you hang all that up or are you still active or what are you doing now? You know, I retired, I get this 30 years ago. Oh, goodness. And um, fortunately, uh, shortly after I retired, a couple of guys started a Confederate Air Force squadron. So I joined that. We've since now converted into an Australia Warbird Museum. Fortunately, one of the first airplanes, uh, the museum doesn't own any airplanes, but some of the pilots did. Mm -hmm. So there were four guys that bought a 1945 Stinson L5 Echo, a tailwheel prop airplane, wooden uh, propeller, a lot of fabric on the side. And I bought a quarter interest. And through the years, people have died and moved away. And so I own the airplane myself. And we're doing the annual right now. So I do fly once a week, but I also fly formation uh, for Memorial Day, Veterans Day. We fly a three-ship formation. I fly the right wing, do the missing man pull-up. Oh, cool. I've even got a tube that I can drop uh, cremation ashes. So I've done that 12 times for veterans that I've known. Wow. Uh, So I uh, still stay up in the wild blue yonder and be 85 here in about three weeks. Oh, well, happy early birthday. That's probably around when we'll be airing this, so that sounds great. I'm hanging in there for an old fart. Uh, Well, I'd say you're doing quite well. Dare I ask how many hours in the logbook, or did you give up keeping track? You know, I I just haven't totaled them, but I got to be close to around 10,000 hours in a lot of different airplanes. So yes. It's been a good time. And the airplane that I fly now, it's interesting because so many civilians are kind of concerned about tailwheel airplanes Mm -hmm. and how dangerous they are and everything. (laughs) Of course, I flew that in combat in Vietnam. So flying a tailwheel airplane is no big deal. No, I would say not. Well, on that note, as much as we could go off in all these different directions and would love to do that sometime, let's focus our discussion on the A1 Sky Raider, which I guess at one point you go far enough back, the nomenclature had not even settled into what we take for granted now. I think it used to be called the AD1 and 2 and 3, but let's start at the beginning, George. Can you tell us what this aircraft was designed to do? As I understand, it started with the Navy and just barely missed World War II. That's correct. It came out shortly after World War II as a Navy attack aircraft, obviously slow and lower altitude, although I think they did have nukes that they could carry. But it was you know, designed to take off and land from a carrier. So that also put special things. But it uh, had 15 weapon stations. We carried a centerline 370-gallon tank, a stub 150-gallon tank, and had around 2,300 pounds of fuel and the fuselage. So you had six hours of capability. It was loaded with weapons, and uh, the 15 weapon station didn't include four 20-millimeter guns. So uh, it was good that it had armor plating on the side. It had armor plating on the bottom. It had uh, been modified, so it had a Yankee escape system, like an ejection seat, except that you're just pulled out of the airplane like a puppet. You don't go out in a seat. (laughs) But, but it worked just as good as an ejection seat. So it would take a pretty good hit. It had a, you know, 18-cylinder mm. engine. And unlike the jets, you know, any place you hit a jet, 
whether it's fuel or oxygen or hydraulics or anything, engine, it comes apart in seconds. Mm -hmm. The old Sky Raider, it would buck and it would blow steam and <laughs> oil would come out, but it might get you down the road till you could get out or maybe you get it all the way home. So yeah. <laughs> that was good because we're low altitude yeah. and um, anybody gets hit uh, very bad, of course, you got to head home and turn the rescue over to other people. So yeah. it was a good airplane for its mission. Uh, we used the word Sandy. Air Force is still using uh, Sandy for rescue. So that's stuck over 50 years now. Uh, the Sandys are still in there. Where did that originate? Did I hear correctly that it was someone's mother or wife that needed to come up with a call sign? And I wrote a book about this, too, called Cheating Death, Combat Air Rescues in Vietnam and Laos, published by the Smithsonian Institute Press, 2003 out of print as far as hardcover is concerned, although you can buy one on Amazon, but it was republished by Harper Brothers, so you can still get the book. But the best I can understand is the guy that kind of started when they did the rescue missions, I think he had a dog by the name Sandy. So <laughs> there you go. I was way off. I was going for wives and mothers, and it was... <laughs> you weren't far off of it. Uh, oh, let's move on from that one, George. I don't want to get you in trouble. All right. So, yeah, that was a question that was posed to me from someone who knew I was coming into this conversation. But I've got a great team who helps me prepare for these interviews, and they provided me all this information. And it was interesting to read that the aircraft was designed with all these different purposes. Like you said, it was nuclear-capable. Unlike a lot of airplanes, some of the multi-seat variants weren't tandem like you might see in, say, an F-15, mm -hmm. but rather side-by-side. -side. And we'll get to those variants in just a minute, but the one thing you really touched on that I wanted to discuss is all those weapon stations. I mean, first off, it sounds like a flying tank. And then secondly, I believe, wasn't this a lot of the, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The uh, inspiration for the A-10 when it came along later? I think it was. That's the one that took over the role of the, uh, mm -hmm. the Skyraider. And of course, it has a big gun. Oh, yes. It's the right airplane, I think, for today's wars. Okay. Well, was there a particular mission, and I bet I can guess the answer here, but it's part of our series of questions we always ask for any aircraft, but is there one particular mission you would say this aircraft excelled at? You know, I think probably in every way. The rescue mission was uh, good for it because of the ejection seats and the ability to stay there for a long time, because the rescue is a complicated mission. You've got to find the guy. You got to make contact with him. You have to find out whether he's injured or not. You have to find out what signaling equipment he has, whether there's enemy around him. All that you need to know before you can bring in a helicopter that goes into a hover. And you might have to put the pararescue guy on a penetrator and uh, go down in the hoist. Also, that can take minutes for them to do that. So the guy that's on the ground can help himself very well if he speaks with us and tells us what's going on. And then we got to make the decision as to what we do. We even had a disabling gas. If he's up in a tree and here's enemy that's at the bottom of the tree, there's nobody that can put ordnance in that close. But we can gas everybody and pick them up. So, and of course, weather is a factor. The time of day, we, we only rescued in daytime. 
no night vision goggles, no GPS. This is a fist fight. Oh, yeah. That's what this is, is going to be. If they come in, then we're going to fight them. Mm-hmm. And we just want our guy out. We're not trying to hold land. We just want to get him out and have a beer with him. <laughs> he buys the bar when we bring him home. And like so many other bombing missions in the Vietnam era where you're in the jungle environment, you don't know how successful you are unless you get secondaries. Here you know. You either get, have him at home with you or you don't. Yes. And it's really hard to leave. That's why, you know, we personally carried two radios, but three batteries, because that's your lifeline. Nobody walked out of Vietnam. There were hardly any friendlies on the ground. So if we don't get you, things are not looking good. Yeah. Well, so I want to circle back to gas. That's a new one to me. So was there some sort of agent you released and what? Yeah, it was a riot control gas and it was a a CBU something or other. The code name was Juicy Fruit. And so uh, if we were going to use Juicy Fruit, then we had to tell him, you know, strap yourself to the trees because we don't want you to fall out. Your eyes are going to water and you're going to vomit and you're not going to be happy with this. So we had gas masks in our airplane, but you just can't wear a gas mask in an airplane. So you just had to guts it out. Probably one of the interesting things about it was someplace towards the end of my tour, we were told, and this is now April 68 to April 69, uh, we were told that we had to use this on every rescue. And of course, that's not ideal unless you really need it. It's not to use it. So we interpreted it as only pilots would. Uh, they didn't say how we could use it. It would make a good <laughs> smoke screen. So if you didn't really need it, you could bring them in and use it as smoke screen and say you used it. The feeling is afterwards, uh, post coming back, is that you know they were doing maybe some planning on the Sante raid up in North Vietnam to get the prisoners out and might have to use mm-hmm. this. So they wanted to know how effective it is. That's the only thing we could guess from guys flying the airplane and thinking about it afterwards. Ironically, one of the guys in our squadron, a major who completed his tour and went back as an instructor in Hurlburt, was on the Sante raid. Oh, wow. And, of course, they got there and there was nobody there. Yeah, well, unfortunate, but still a valiant effort. Well, I I don't think I'd heard of that. So, okay, that's pretty interesting. All right, so close air support, obviously carrier strike and dive bombing. I think I read that some of these damaged a dam in, what, the Korean conflict and changed their name to the Dam Busters. So definitely a lot of history with this aircraft, over 3,000 made and several variants. And I wonder what variants did you fly? Well, we went through training at at Hurlburt. I left uh, Edwards and uh, went to Hurlburt, which was right next to Eglin Air Force Base. That's where the training was. So all of the airplanes there were side-by-side seaters. Okay. And you went up with an instructor, and of course, you learned transition and uh, basic flying, and then went out to the range and fired the ordnance. When I got in theater, they had about half and half. So the, the side-by-seat seaters were A1Es and A1Gs. Mm-hmm. The single-seaters were Hs and Js, which were some of the last airplanes ever built. Matter of fact, we put names on the noses so that when you first got there, 
all the airplanes are taken with names, but about halfway through, as some guys rotate through, because we went there, about four guys would arrive every six weeks, and then hopefully four guys would leave every six weeks where they finished up their year tour. Mm -hmm. When uh, my airplane came available, it was an A1J, which I liked, and I named it Socket to Him, left over from the Socket to Me uh, laugh-in program that was on NBC at that time period. So the H's and J's, Typically, lead got to fly an H or J. The advantage is you could make a weapon pass turning left or turning right. If you're in an E or G, you're sitting in the left seat, and it's pretty hard to make a weapon pass to the right. The visibility is not very good out through there. Yeah. So interesting part about the A1 that's different than other tailwheel props, particularly fighters, the P-51, P-47, Spitfire. In all of those airplanes, the cockpit sits about at the trailing edge of the wing. The Sky Raider, you're sitting at the leading edge of the wing. Hmm. So you could use, you have uh, two 20-millimeter guns on each side, and we also had a stub that carried uh, a minigun for rescues, and it could carry a variety of things. So we use those for the angle of dive bombing and firing, meaning the outer gun is the lowest angle, so that's about a 20-degree and that's what you might use for strafing. The inboard gun is about a 30-degree dive angle, and the stub is 40. So we use 40 degrees when we dive bomb bombs. Of course, we had also CBU and napalm, and of course, that you come in level and low and high speed and drop it off. So it was an easier airplane by sitting up in the front. It was still a tailwheel airplane. You had to S-turn to taxi. Mm-hmm. It was a good old bird. Did the single-seat models fly the same as the two-seat models, or were there noticeable performance differences? You know, the trim was different. I kind of forget. I think maybe one had electrical rudder and the other had manual. The speed brakes were located a little bit different. Okay, Stall characteristics were somewhat different. So there were some differences, but the single-seater was more streamlined. Sure. And one of the things you got to worry about in that airplane early on, when you still have a lot of gas and a lot of ordnance, that's a 25,000-pound airplane. So that's a big, heavy airplane. And you get down low and start maneuvering, and you slow down and slow down and slow down and until you get some bombs off of it or starting to lighten it up a little bit. you got to be really careful that you don't stall it or just get so slow that you're easy to hit. Oh, I imagine. Uh, matter of fact, probably the interesting thing, just as a sideline, my uh, second rescue was up in North Vietnam, and I was number four, and uh, it was very cloudy up there, and it was an F-4 that went down, two guys were down, and so we were maneuvering to get underneath the clouds, and I didn't want to overrun my lead, so I opened up the speed brake. When I got down underneath there, I forgot the speed brake because you never needed a speed brake in an <laughs> airplane that was so slow to begin with and all that ordnance. I forgot about it, and so I'm down low, and they're starting to shoot at me, and everybody's yelling, come on up, come on up. I saw two tracers make a pink X right in front of my nose, which meant the gunners couldn't believe I was flying that slow either. They were <laughs> leading me too much, and then fine, and I thought, you know, is the landing gear down? Do I have ordnance bad? Should I jettison ordnance if something's hanging sideways? And then suddenly it dawned on me that speed brake is down. Put the speed brakes in and 
<laughs> and we did pick up both guys, and I think I landed at seven o'clock in the morning. So, oh my you know, this is two o'clock brief, uh, three three thirty pre-flight, airborne at four, out in the area, really, really early, so you can start making audio calls on guard to get your guy to come up. Because mm-hmm. if they went down late in the afternoon and we can't get out there, we typically would tell the guy, you know, strap yourself in, turn off your radio. We'll come in early in the morning, and when you hear us, come up on guard and let us know. But plan to spend the night in the trees and take care of yourself. Oh, boy. Well, what's the alternative, right? So do what it takes because, again, you want to get home and then buy that round of beer for everybody. And I would certainly say it's probably not just the first round, George. I would hope that's a privilege for life. If these folks see you at a reunion these days, I hope they're still buying. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's uh, (laughs) and also I guess I should add on this F4 Rescue. We also started an organization called the Society of Combat Search and Rescue. It started in 1998, which was 30 years after the rescue of Streetcar 304, my first one that I was on. A Navy guy out of the Carrier America, A7, goes down in Chapone, a bad place, and um, took us three days to get him out. Uh, we finally got him out, but we lost a bunch of planes. This is when my lead is shot down, evades for three days, and is captured. I think it was some 180 sorties over three days to get this guy out. My wife even heard Walter Cronkite say it was the longest, greatest number of sorties to recover somebody. So that was the first one. Then the second one. So that was a biggie because of losing one of our guys because we didn't know mm-hmm. he had been captured until 1973. But the second one, when I was writing the book uh, about the F-4 guys, uh, they were taken to a different facility, so they never got to buy us a drink. So (laughs) when we started having these reunions, we had one at the Fighter Weapons School, and sure enough, I had now found the two guys, the front seater and the back seater, and they came, and I had said, I think, something to the effect in my book that if you put the inflation on a bottle of the beer for 30 plus years, they owed us quite a bit. <laughs> so sure enough, when they came for our big debriefing at the weapons school in Vegas, they got the biggest bottle of champagne that you could ever, ever find. And everybody in the whole banquet got a small cup of champagne. So uh, we played that one up uh, really big. We always did. Oh, I'm sure. You know, George, <laughs> your experiences trump anything I've ever had, but I say to people who ask me that I joined the military to fly fighters and I stayed because of the people. And I have to think the relationships that you built, what you're talking about is just unlike anything you can find anywhere else. It just sounds really amazing. Yeah. You know, this bonding has been really quite interesting because in 30 years later, the reason we started this kind of reunion thing was because the guy that had been shot down Obviously, he's captured, and uh, that's the end of the war for him. Mm -hmm. The Navy pilot we picked up, and I had kept in touch with him. He usually called me at Christmas time and said, thanks for saving my life. (laughs) Anyhow, one of our senior guys said, you know, we never had the debriefing of the Navy pilot streetcar 304. What we ought to do is our pilot, the one that had been captured, I guess every year he went to Pensacola to take a physical because they were following 
the POWs and their health from then on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he was going to be at Pensacola on a Monday morning, and the previous weekend, the Jolly Greens were meeting at Eglin Air Force Base. So this retired colonel suggested that I contact everybody that I could, and we get together and debrief that. So I did find the Navy pilot. He was in North Carolina, could drive there. There were eight of us that on a Saturday morning, that not part of the Jolly Green program, but just in a conference room, in the motel, we debriefed what happened during the three days. I was the only one that flew all three days. The Navy guys on the ground gets rescued on the third day, and our Air Force guy gets captured on the third day. And it turns out that there were two helicopter pilots, Air Force pilots from the weapons school at Nellis, and they heard our story, and they said, you guys got to come and give us that briefing. So six months later, uh, we did show up. Now we even had a helicopter pilot that made the uh, pickup, and we had to put together a program. It wasn't just a bull session. Somebody had to have a map and (laughs) photographs, and this, what does it all mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So that was our first uh, gathering, and we decided then to form this organization and meet every year at a military base, both Navy and Air Force, and give a uh, debrief, a hostile rescue to the active duty Air Force guys that are now performing that mission. And so it was a great learning it wasn't an old man marching society this had some meat to it and it was really great for us to meet these young 23 24 27 year old fighter pilots and hear uh, what they were doing with the a-10 we had the survivor there we try and get the helicopter pilot get the sandys everybody that we could and so it really it caught fire it was really neat we continued to doing that up until about two or three years ago And we were kind of aging out. Uh, Now we're all in practically 80s. Even the youngest guys are in their 80s. It's also Afghanistan and Iraq is a desert war or it was a jungle war. They've got all the electronic equipment. But a lot of times they said the guys either doesn't work or they don't know how to use it. And they also, (laughs) we only picked up air crew. Now they even pick up contractors and State Department people. And it's somewhat uh, different. But there was enough similarities that it was a good experience for all of us. It helped me in reconnecting. Since I got out of the service, uh, it helped me reconnect with people, and that gave me the chance to interview my guys because I wanted to, for sure, in my book, memorialize the 12 guys that were killed. Right. So some I knew quite well, some I didn't know so well, but somebody knew them. They either roomed with them, flew with them, whatever, and I could interview them and put the facts in a book. Well, that sounds amazing, George. For those of us who will never have a chance to observe one of those debriefs or visits, are they memorialized on YouTube anywhere? Is there any replaying available? No, we really haven't, to my knowledge. Okay. Because we started in 1998. You know, I have a bunch of old VHS tapes of some of those. So it was kind of before... This electronic age has exploded so much. It's too bad that we couldn't have uh-huh. have uh, recorded that better, but yes, but we didn't. But that has been a highlight of my life to keep track of these guys that I flew with, and they were special. Oh, I can only imagine. They were certainly the best part of my generation. And one thing in writing the book, I remember thinking, you know, these guys are really, really good, and yet 
most of the guys in the squadron were just your typical guys. Some of them had been maintenance officers, flying safety officers. There was nobody that, you know, looked like they were going to get stars. And yet they were so good. And I had flown with guys in my test pilot world that became astronauts, went to the moon, became generals and everything. And I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I think these guys were better pilots than <laughs> all of these uh, good arm guys, supposedly good yeah. arm. And I kind of came to the conclusion that people rose to the occasion. It was kind of like a sports team. You know, you're working together for a common goal and you don't want to let the team down. I don't want to be the one that misses the tackle. I don't want to drop the throw. And so that spirit uh, was really, you know, you pick that up. Because even if you weren't involved with the rescue, we had a, a debriefing for everybody so that you could, even though you weren't on the rescue, you could learn something from it. You know, the Sandy lead would say, this is what I did and why I did it and go through it. So the idea is that you need experience. You need to know what are the options? What are your thoughts? Because I've always said a Sandy lead was like a football quarterback, except you know, don't have any huddles. Everybody's running all the time. Audibles. And you got to fly your airplane. You got to look out. You got to decide what you're going to do. Talk with the survivors. See how people are putting ordinance in. You know, I even told a full colonel to go home one time. It wasn't putting it where I wanted it. Yeah. It wasn't worth having him there. So that was an interesting experience from a rank Point of view. Also, you know, we became really, really, really close with our ground crew. That's different in combat than it is in regular military life. Yes. And, and we've included them in our reunions. They have a great time. I don't uh, disagree with that. I'm sure that's true. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. George, I want to return briefly to variants. I've read here, again, according to the research my team has provided me, there was all kinds of weird cats and dogs in the Sky Raider. We had some two-seat electronic countermeasure versions. We had a three-seat version and some airborne early warning versions. Did you ever cross paths with any of these other strange ones and any experiences with those? No, you know, uh, because those were, I think, pretty much Navy variants. Okay. There were two other A-1 squadrons. Well, initially, I guess I should add, I told you I went to Udorn, mm-hmm. the northern side. Our squadron stayed there for about another two months, and then we moved over to NKP, which are right on the Mekong River, right next to the Jolly Greens, a little bit closer to the Magia Pass and the places where people were getting uh, shot down. So the airplanes, the only really thing we had was the strike mission and the rescue mission. We didn't have uh, anything else in our squadron. Now, there were two other A-1 squadrons also at Nikon Phnom. One did 
only strikes at night. They were a night outfit that mm. bombed and did all their activity under flares. And then there was another squadron that did gravel drop, which was part of this electronic era where they could drop sensors into the trees. And then Igloo White is what it was called. It was all highly classified. It was part of McNamara's electronic world. And the idea was that you could hear trucks, you could hear them talking. So you could drop that. They also had what was called gravel, which was a material that looked like gravel, but if you stepped on it, it would explode. <laughs> and so it would injure, it wouldn't probably kill people, but you know, uh, any kind of an injury or cut in a jungle environment is going to get infected and it kind of takes the guy out of the game. And so then I might add, uh, when I left in April of 1969, like I said, we lost 12 guys. So we lost a lot of experience. And also towards uh, that later time period in my era, when I got there and before me, everybody was at least a captain, a lot of majors. We had maybe four or five, even lieutenant colonels. So it was a lot of experience prior to flying the Sky Raider. As time went on, we started getting second lieutenants right out of flying school. And this was really a lot for them to handle because, you know, you've got a tailwheel airplane. It's really heavy. You have to be able to navigate. You have to be able to fly formation. Uh, you have to understand all the codes and the maps. And it's just a lot to handle for a young guy. And a lot of them really weren't that good. Some of them were good, but a lot of them weren't too good. And so we're reluctant to move them in a position of a sandy lead. After I left some time there, I believe they turned the Sandy Rescue over to the wing and used experienced people that had flown at night or had done some of these other things just because they were been in the cockpit longer and had more leadership qualities, capabilities than these young guys. So, mm-hmm. you know, things morph, things change. War is crazy any way you look at it. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. How about proliferation? I read that the A-1 was flown by the three branches of the American military, as well as the Royal Navy, and then all kinds of different places, Cambodia, Chad, France, Sweden even had some, I guess, South Vietnam, and then, of course, North Vietnam when they captured them. Did you have any dealings with any other flyers of the A-1? No, we really didn't. I think uh, it seems like one of the guys had been in South Vietnam and had been an instructor with the South Vietnamese that were also flying uh, Sky Raiders. So mm. he had a little bit of that experience. But uh, I think I did kind of check one time in the squadron to see if there was anybody that had what we call TAC, Tactical Air Command. This was a Tactical Air Command type of war. This wasn't Air Defense Command. It wasn't uh, SAC type of one. It was an air university and all that. It was tactical air command with F-100s, F-4s, and 105s. And they originally went to war on TDY because they were used to having packages that could move across the ocean, tank, and do that. So the squadrons would operate out of Japan or the Philippines and go TDY in country. But the war kept going on longer and longer. So that's when they decided we'll keep the squadrons in country in South Vietnam and in Thailand and rotate pilots. Then they started even uh, volunteer for the aircraft of your choice. So now we had SAC B-47 pilots that now were an F-4 pilot. and, And so we lost 
the guys with the TAC experience that had been doing in-flight refueling, that had been in the gunnery range in a variety of airplanes and were good gunners. That's what they had trained to be. SAC guys were good bombers. Now they were flying uh, an F-4 or 105. And so it got kind of messy because the chief of staff of the Air Force said, this is not a TAC war. Uh, we all have wings on. Everybody gets a chance to go do this. So that's why they had this volunteer for the aircraft of your choice. So that was probably a dumb thing, but who knows? <laughs> a lot of dumb things happen. Oh, no doubt about that. <laughs> well, let's talk armament. And we've already covered some of it. We've talked about the 20 millimeter cannons and all the hard points. Was there anything this thing didn't carry? Maybe it's easier to go with what it didn't take, but. Well, on station one and 15, which the outer left wing and right wing, we had a, a seven pod white phosphorus marking rocket. So that's the only thing we use those for. Because again, on our strike missions up in northern Laos, we would go up and strike, get, drop our bombs, shoot some of our regular rockets. And then the 105s or the F-4s would come up and we'd fact them in. Mm -hmm. Now we'd lightened up our airplane and we had seven in each side so we could mark 14 times. And the white phosphorus burns on the ground and you tell them hit north or south or east or west of my mark and then they'd go. So that we always carried, that was kind of a standard load. I guess an interesting one on the sandier load was a, uh, a white phosphorus bomb that was left over from World War II in short supply. And where that was used was for uh, rescue missions. And what you do is got a survivor down there. It's a jungle environment. You can't see anything, particularly the jets that are coming in at 15, 20,000 feet because they're loaded with all kinds of ordnance. So they're not up at 35 with all the external bombs. And so we'd take one of these white phosphorus bombs and drop it off near the survivor, but not right on him. And that thing would then, because it wasn't armed, it'd break open and it would just burn. A white smoke would go out for 45 an hour or something like that. That way, as people are coming in the area, you can explain to them where, you know, where to come <laughs> or to move in and be ready to uh, roll in to support the rescue. Uh, we carried CBU. They were in tubes and they went out the back. The idea also was to have enough ordnance that you could fly and make many, many, many passes, which is against kind of normal operations because usually it's a really hot area you make one pass and haul ass you, you don't stick around that's right and you also if you have a flight of four coming in as we were facking them uh, they try and split uh, you know one comes in south to north one east to west one west to east one north to south they're daisy chaining and one goes in and the other one starts in before the other one pulls out so you make it difficult for them to move their guns around and and then they head back to the tanker. This is different when you're a sandy lead. You like to have be able to shoot all the time, have something. You don't want to run out of ordnance when it's time for the pickup, and you don't know quite for sure when that's going to be. So you need to kind of uh, be very, very careful. It's important what you got left. So that was what the ordnance loads were kind of set up that way. The rockets, interesting, were 19 in a pod, and it had, it was a cardboard pod, cardboard nose on it. So it was very streamlined until you fired the first rocket and it went through the cardboard nose. And now you got a lot of drag. <laughs> You'd want to use missiles on rockets on that side, on that wing. And then actually we dropped the pod 
because it was so damn draggy. And the same was kind of true with uh, fuel, the center line and the stub. So on the rescue missions, we had a minigun on the uh, left stub and a 150-gallon fuel tank on the right. So a lot of gas, uh, minigun you could use over and over again. It wasn't bore sighted very well, but it was good enough for, for that kind of mission. <laughs> And the center line, I think it was a 300 gallons uh, center line tank. And so we had the real streamlines, which we tried to keep. And then we had the ones that were like bathtubs. So if you were on a rescue mission and you had used all your external fuel, which you would do, I mean, that makes sense. And then you would, you could drop that uh, center line and that would streamline you up and you get a little more speed. By speed, we're talking 230, 240, not. 450, 500. And right. as anybody know in combat, the faster you go, the better you feel. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right. So I read that although it doesn't have any, say, dedicated air to air weapons, the A1 is credited with at least two kills, I think MiG 17 frescoes. Yeah, that was by Navy guys. Actually, when we went through Hurlbert, we did air to air against uh, T 33 as just a simulated jet. Hmm. Theory was, is if you're you know, encountering a MIG, the idea is to get low. He burns more fuel at low altitude than he does at high altitude. So put your, don't run and rich, just turn it regular, lean it out. So you're going to try and outlast him. You can turn inside of him as long as you keep him in sight. Mm -hmm. And you convert every pass into a head-on pass and use your 20 millimeters and you take a couple shots if he wants to go head-on. The problem is if there's two of them, then you got a problem. <laughs> if they split up, then they can get you. Yeah. You know, it's going to be defensive air to air. It's certainly not going to be offensive. You're probably not going to get somebody that wants to turn low altitude with you. So that's what we did. You know, typical military airplanes, you listen to the radio and you have guard receiver. And so there was an airborne plane out in the Gulf and ships out there that would pick up the MiGs on radar if they got airborne. Mm -hmm. Hanoi was called Bullseye. So you'd hear on guard, bandits southwest of Bullseye, uh, 20 miles, 80 miles, whatever it was. When you first went over there, you set up your maps. You, you know, you spend a lot of time with rules of engagement and you got your maps and you put plastic on top of them, put a string in over Hanoi so that whenever they called that out, I could pull my string out and go southwest 40 miles and see where that was and know where, where to look. I only heard one case where they did call out bullseye and it, it was close to me. And looked up, and sure enough, I saw contrails, but they never came down. <laughs> but I watched them. You were ready. Yeah, with that big propeller down low, as I'm sure where you wanted to be. Now, speaking of that, performance-wise, you said 230 to 240. You spent most of your time down low, but I'm guessing you didn't want to get much higher than, what, the mid-20s in this thing? It's not a pressurized cabin, I'm guessing. You're lucky to get up to 10, 11,000. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> going out to the target area full and that would take you an hour to get up there. When you got airborne, it's a hot day. It's a 4,500-foot takeoff roll. We operated on PSP for a while. Oh, gosh. And so that was sporty because you don't want the prop to hit the PSP. Uh, so you got to watch how much you lower the nose. And then when you get airborne, get that gear up, and you're climbing out at 250 feet per minute, 300, something like that. So that thing is just staggering along. There's no mm. air conditioning in it. So Oof. you kind of get cleaned up and get up a little bit, open up the canopy because you're, you got a vest on and uh, 
you know, gloves on, helmet on, and oxygen mask, and no air conditioning. <laughs> so it is hot as blazes until you can start to climb up. Took us 40, 50 minutes to get up to the northern part of Laos. And, you know, it cruises 140 indicated, 165 true. Well, that's pretty slow in the jet era. <laughs> that is really, really slow. So uh, we're kind of going around at that. And when you did dive bombing, you get up to, you know, 240 in a dive, maybe 220 for the rocket uh, firing. And then, uh, of course, the guns is usually that's low altitude, closer in. And, mm -hmm. and you hope you've cleaned up a little bit. Right. Uh, then the guns weren't all very good either. They tended to jam, and we were carrying what was called API, armor-piercing incinerary, so it had a hot head. Mm -hmm. And there were cases that if the gun jammed and it threw another round in, it would hit the back of another one and explode. So we had a couple of cases where it was hard to believe that the golden bullet uh, BB hit the guy, uh, that maybe it was the gun that, that went off. Uh, <laughs> Pretty sure that's what happened to my airplane. Old socket two and went down about a month after I left. And guy was Major JB East was flying it, and he went in, and nobody saw a parachute or heard a uh. beeper or anything. And uh, the area was overrun, so they weren't able to get in. And then some couple of weeks later, they got back into it, and they got into his the crash site, and they found a pistol in the wreckage with the barrel bent about. 45 degrees. Of course, it had a serial number on the bottom, and they could check with personnel, and that was the gun that J.B. East had checked out. So with that knowledge, he was declared uh, KIA. Most of our guys that went down were MIA, because you don't have a body. They could have gotten out at the last minute. And I think maybe that was, as it turns out, kind of a bad feature, because the family is told they're MIA, even though we're not pretty sure nobody got out. No beeper, no parachute, nothing to indicate they got out. And they're still carried as MIA, and that gives the family hope. That's right. And they didn't send much information to the family. That's part of the reason I wrote the book. Yeah. Because I wanted, even though in many cases I didn't know too much more than the official story of what happened to them, at least the next of kin now can read my book and know what we were doing, how we were doing it, how we were trained, how successful we were. That really worked out good. And matter of fact, probably one of the sensitive things that I had, the guy that got the Medal of Honor, he volunteered to go over to uh, Southeast Asia. And um, he got hit badly on a rescue mission, but got the airplane, uh, got it back. And his daughter, one of his two daughters, came to one of the our rescue uh, reunions. And she said she was a teenager at the time, and, and she said, my dad volunteered to go to war. And I was so pissed at him that he would leave me and go to war. After she heard what we did and how we did it, she said, you know, I forgive him. I see now why he wanted to go to war, and I see what he did. So that had kind of a life-changing event for her. Well, I would, would think so. War has a way of really changing people, and it affects people differently. But yes, that is quite a story, George. Uh, you, Those things happened over and over again oh, and, yes. and are still happening. Yes. Uh, as is evidenced by your interest in interviewing me on the airplane. Mm -hmm. 
uh, part of the Australia Warbird Museum. There's nothing we would like better than yeah. to get a, a Sky Raider. Oh, I bet. When I was in a fighter squadron, this was in the early 60s, one of the guys wanted, uh, after seeing the first Mercury shot, he decided he wanted to become an astronaut. And, and so he and I uh, went to Edwards to talk with uh, Chuck Yeager about getting into the Air Force Test Pilot School. And so make a long story short, my friend got turned down, but he applied for NASA anyhow, got picked up in the third class and was on Apollo 8, the first one to go around the moon. He was wow. the LEM commander, but there was no LEM on board, but mm -hmm. he was in charge of photography. And he's the one that took the picture of Earth that became Earthrise. Ah. And so he <laughs> obviously was in NASA. He left NASA, did very, very well in industry, made multiple millions of dollars, opened up his own museum up in Washington State, and guess what he bought from France? A Sky Raider. <laughs> <laughs> and he and his son fly that Sky Raider around. So called Proud American. So um, even guys that went to the moon I seem to have a love affair with this guy. Also, he came to one of our reunions just to attend. And I was always in charge of the uh, guest speakers and setting up the whole rescue thing. So I thought, you know, I need to introduce him to all the other guys that are here, the active duty Air Force and my guys. Nobody knew who, who he was, civilian clothing. This was actually in Tucson probably 15 years ago. So I said that I wanted to introduce a fellow pilot of mine who went the furthest distance you could think of to get away from Vietnam. And I said, where do you think he went? And somebody yelled, you know, Greenland, Iceland. I said, no, he went to the damn moon to get away from <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. All right. So, George, a little while back, you threw out the acronym PSP. And you and I understand that as the pierced steel planking. That's that surface they put down when you don't otherwise have a prepared runway. That's right. Just wanted to throw that one out there. But otherwise, this has been really interesting stuff. Just finishing on the performance very quickly. Did it pull very many Gs? Uh, it's not something I guess other aircraft think about. But in fighters, we think about seven and a half or nine Gs. You could pull G's, but of course, the weight of the airplane and the speed, you're not going to get too much. I, but it was a good G airplane. Uh, I guess after I'd been there a couple of months, I got to do functional check flights. You know, oh. whenever you change flight controls or engine needs a functional check flight. So I would take off and stay right over Thailand. All I needed was my gun. I carried that, but I didn't need the vest and didn't need all that stuff. And so I had enough time to check out the airplane and then do a little maneuvering in it. So you could pull three, four, five Gs in, in that airplane, but hmm. it wasn't really something we could do in an armed condition. Right. Uh, just too much weight on it. Well, and speaking of too much weight, I also heard that with that massive engine, it had quite a bit of torque and maybe not a problem so much for you, but at the carrier, uh, in close wave-offs, if they added too much power too quickly, you could really overpower the aerodynamics of the aircraft. And you could do what's called a torque roll. Wow. We would see that at Hurlburt. You get up to, I'm thinking, seven, 8,000 feet, something like that, in you know approach mode. The instructor would tell you, keep your feet on the floor and just add full power. And, of course, that thing would just turn over to the left. So uh, you needed uh, right rudder for takeoff. The same was kind of true for landing. Matter of fact, one of the guys that went through my class, there were uh, 11, 12 that went through my class at Hurlbut. Four of us went to Udorn, 
but the other guys that went to other squadrons in South Vietnam. But one of the guys uh, did get killed that was in my class and supposedly had some kind of a problem and it was coming back to land and it didn't look good to him or something. And he added power and, and upside mm. down he went and he went in. Yeah. I know the exact details of it. So it would uh, it'd torque roll on you. Just uh, characteristics that you don't see in jets. And I guess the older, some of the older guys that were in the squadron had flown T-6s. I didn't. I went through T-34 for 30 hours before I got into the T-37. So well, I had to kind of learn what a mag was all over again mm-hmm. when I got into Sky Raider. And starting the engine, that was, if you backfired on start, you owed a case of beer to the ground crew. And so they put the throttle in the position that if you came out a little hungover and didn't adjust it, it was going to backfire. <laughs> so it was sporty with your hand. On the right side, you had a starter switch that you hit with your number one finger. And you had to count, uh, what was it, 16 blades or something until now you turn the mags on with your left hand. And now it was time to go in with primer, which was now your second finger. You held the primer down and adjusted the throttle until it got it running. And then you have to let go of the primer. And also, then you got to let go of the starter when it starts running, but keep your finger down on the primer. Once you get it running on the primer, let up in the primer and put mixture rich. <laughs> Boy. And smoke comes back over the airplane. And I always said, if you can get this sucker started, that's half the mission. <laughs> well, I don't <laughs> doubt that. All right. Well, wow. This has been really interesting, George. Um, let me add one more thing about that, if you don't mind, that I think is a colorful thing about the starting of the, of the Skyrim. As I mentioned, I was a test pilot in the Air Force, but I was also a member of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Uh, Neil Armstrong, first man to land on the moon, Apollo 11, he was a member of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. So I had his address, and after I wrote my book, Cheating Death, Combat, Air Rescues in Vietnam and Laos, I had his address, so I sent him a copy of the book. And a couple of weeks went by, and lo and behold, I got a letter from Neil Armstrong, and he said, you know... I joined the Navy back in the 50s. I think he was in the Korean War in jets. But he said one of his jobs as an ensign right out of flying school was picking up Sky Raiders and Navy Sky Raiders and ferrying them to uh, Sky Raider squadrons on the West Coast. And he said, I could never start the A-1 engine without the help of a plane captain, which is equivalent of a crew chief in the Air Force. So I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. Here's the guy who lands on the moon and all of us in the testing world says that's the highest thing you can do. He's right up there with Lindbergh. And yet in his mind, he probably thinks it was harder to start the Sky Raider than to land on the moon. So (laughs) isn't that a strange twist? That is indeed. All right. Well, you have been very generous with your time and sharing these amazing experiences. And if you could just summarize for us the books that you've written and where we can find them. And then also I'd like to hear just a little bit more about the museum and maybe how to spell it because it didn't sound familiar. We can leave links to all this in the uh, show notes. but. How many books have you written at this point, George? Well, I've written five books. All have an aviation perspective. The first one was uh, Cheating at Combat Air Rescues in Vietnam and Laos. 
came out in 2003, Smithsonian Institute Press. Okay. Then I started writing a book about uh, Howard Hughes and also my experience as a test pilot with Hughes Aircraft Company. And uh, when I contacted the Naval Institute Press, they wanted to break it into two books because the movie The Aviator came out in 2004. And I was a technical consultant for the movie. So I uh, broke it into two books. One is called Howard Hughes Aviator. I think that came out yeah, in um, October of 2004, the movie The Aviator starring DiCaprio and Scorsese as the director came out in December. Hmm. Uh, we ended up winning five Academy Awards. We didn't get the best one because Clint Eastwood run us, run us out. So I d- okay. divided that up. Then the third book was uh, Hughes Testing Death, Hughes Aircraft Company, Test Pilots and Cold War Weaponry that came out in 2006. Again, hardcover, but out of print hardcover. They're all in softcover. Then I went back to uh, writing about Edwards being a test pilot out there for four years. And I called this uh, Contrails Over the Mojave. It came out in 2008, uh, hardbound, but now also uh, softbound. And it's about testing that uh, I did and out at Edwards and the guys that I knew who were, turns out, like 35 of my test pilot friends through the years have been killed in accidents. I don't cover all of those, but relevant ones. This was a time period when the B-70 was flying, the X-15, the lifting bodies, YF-12, SR-71. It was kind of the golden time at Edwards of, mm-hmm. of programs. That's why I wanted to stay there and didn't volunteer to go to war. That was in a good place to be. So that came out in 2008. And just most recently, uh, in this last December, I had my fifth book. And it's titled, If God is Your Co-Pilot, Swap Seats. And it turns out that 25 years ago, I was the chairman of the building committee for our church. And we got a, a half a million dollars in from a woman that passed away. It was to be used for a building. So I was the chairman of the building committee seven years and eight months, and we built a 180-person sanctuary in a two-story Christian education building. And and because I was in charge, I used pilot techniques in building it. So we published it soft cover, just the church and myself. So it's really not on the open market, but okay. that is also kind of part of the flying. Uh, I think uh, anybody that's been in a cockpit from a young guy that just soloed to airline pilots at and combat pilots retired. You learn a lot of techniques in twine that can be used in your life, uh, organization and asking questions of experts that, that know more than you do about that subject. And sometimes you learn a test pilot. I learned ask questions for which I already knew the answer just to see uh, who's blowing smoke and who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, use those techniques in building the church to add a I use those, but it also adds a little color to the book. So Great. the common denominator really in all of my books is to memorialize guys that I knew that I flew with that were lost in combat, were in flight test. Uh, I thought their life should be recognized and something their children, grandchildren could read and know what, what he did. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Any future book projects? No, <laughs> I told my wife I was going to write a book about her, and she said, well, she's my editor, so she said, 
it would be a pamphlet because she said she had redlined practically every story that's in there. So I think I'm through. All right. And then what about this museum you mentioned earlier? Where can we find either online or geographically more information on that? Okay. It's the uh, Estrella Warbird Museum at Paso Robles Airport. We have a website, www.e warbirds, that's plural, .org. And we dropped out of the Confederate Air Force and started this up. We're up to 500, 550 members. We probably have 25 Hulks, former military airplanes that are on static display. Uh, we have six, seven, eight flyable airplanes, but they're all owned by individuals mm-hmm. like myself that get to keep it. And it's on display, but I get a free hanger and the guys help me in doing the uh, the maintenance on, on the airplane. Open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 10 to 4. We're probably the fastest growing West Coast uh, aviation museum. We get people in from all over the country like everybody else. The virus caused us to shut down the museum for a while, but then we've reopened here in the last month or two, and attendance is moving up, but it's tough time. Uh, We have to cancel our events that we had. We typically used to have air shows. Now we have wings and wheel. We had to cancel that out because of the uh, virus. Tomorrow night, we're going to have our first monthly dinner meeting. I've been in charge of getting speakers each month for 28 years, if you can imagine that. Wow. And we're going to open up for the first time with the dinner. But even though the building will hold 180 people, we're limited to 50 people. So yeah. it's kind of hard to make a profit on 50 people. But uh, it's a good, active museum. I still get to fly, be around pilots, kind of like we talked about. The airplanes are a lot of fun, but the guys that you're with are even better. Oh, no doubt. All right, George, and our final question for the day, and I didn't even ask you this before we rolled tape, but we usually ask people to explain their nicknames or call signs, and a lot of folks from Vietnam who were attacked, I don't think had them, but did you have a nickname or a call sign at some point? No, I never did. You know, we were Sandys there and uh, never did. I guess uh, being Merritt, I was called Demerit, I think, uh, a few times, (laughs) but I, I was not a Maverick, didn't have Maverick or Top Gun names. Yeah, of course. Okay, fair enough. Well, George, this has been amazingly informative for me. It's so cool to learn about this aircraft that I just, like I said at the beginning, have loved since I was a child. And you see it here and there in different movies. I think I mentioned on a different episode, there's a scene of it in the movie We Were Soldiers during the Broken Arrow scene and other places where this aircraft has had some notoriety. But certainly your books sound like a great way to not only get to know the airplane, but get to know the people. So really want to thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Wow. So uh, let's see if I got this right, Paul. The F-101, the A-1, the F-4, 5, 14, 15. I'm probably forgetting a few, but like you said before the interview, wow, George has quite the experience and is quite the character and what a speaker. Yeah, absolutely. The guy was great. I love listening to him and I love hearing some of his uh, stories about flying the Sky Raider in Vietnam. You know, it was an iconic airplane back then and did great service while it was deployed there. And when we take ours to air shows, I can't tell you the number of Vietnam veterans who walk up to the airplane and just touch the propeller of the airplane and will tell us stories about how that airplane impacted their lives when they were uh, deployed in Vietnam, either on the ground or in the air. You know, the guys who flew those airplanes were true heroes, and the airplanes themselves were just 
fabulous. No doubt. Well, job that they were doing so. Yeah, I'm sure about that. Now, when you take your aircraft out, which model is it? I didn't ask you that before. I don't recall. You know, they have uh, about 27 different variants of Sky Raiders, believe it or not. And ours is an early model single seat Sky Raider. Its technical designation is an AD-1. Okay. Uh, so it was one of the early versions of it, but it's a single seat Sky Raider as opposed to what we commonly call the fat face, which would be a side-by-side multi-passenger plane. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I know that someone out there is going to say, hey, you didn't talk about the Navy variants in enough detail. Well, you know, it's hard to get good guests on the show and we're doing our best, but we could always circle back to maybe some of those other cats and dogs if we find a, someone with Navy experience. But I thought George really represented well and you could see he's got such a heart for the mission and for the aircraft. But I wonder, Paul, do you have as much trouble starting your A-1 as George and apparently Neil Armstrong did? Well, you know, it's interesting. Generally, no. I mean, our airplane starts pretty well. There's a procedure that you follow. And when you start it enough times, the particular airplane, every airplane's got a little bit of different idiosyncrasies based on how the carburetor's set, things like that. So I would imagine if you were in Vietnam and you're flying different Sky Raiders every day, each one of them would be a little bit slightly different, a little bit more nuanced. We're pretty comfortable with our airplane. The cold starting procedures are pretty well set and the airplane starts up quite well. It gets a little tricky on a hot start. So if we have flown the airplane and the engine's hot, then it's a little bit trickier to start a radial engine when it's hot as opposed to when it's cold because of fuel air mixture, the air density is different, things like that. And so it gets a little tricky on a hot start, but cold starts starts up pretty well. Okay. Well, I'll have to take your word for it. I have no experience in these aircraft, but they sound amazing. And just the sheer amount of power and torque. And I believe you and I spoke briefly about that before on our happy hour discussion that first uh, aired on our Patreon page, where we talked about some of the different aircraft. And I think I read somewhere that you can always tell an A1 pilot because what, his right leg was more muscular than his left. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. All right. So what about that crazy escape system George described? Do you still have something like that in yours? Or have you demilitarized it at this point? Yeah, it's demilled, but it's interesting. I think that the Yankee extraction system was only used in the Sky Raider. I don't know where else it was used. It may have been used elsewhere. I don't know. Because the Sky Raider was slow enough, it's not like flying a jet where you're doing 450, 500 knots or whatever. And the Sky Raider flies around it you know, maybe when it's doing close air support, 240, 250 knots, maybe something like that. And the Yankee extraction system didn't have a rocket. It just had like a drogue chute that would come out that you'd eject the canopy or the drogue chute would literally pull the pilot out without using a rocket and a man seat separator and all that kind of stuff. So it actually, from what I understand, it actually worked well, but it was only used in the Sky Raider and maybe some other small, slow prop plane, but that was about it. But it was, apparently it's pretty effective. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. That's crazy. Um, so just on a side note real quick, so when you fly your T2 or your A4, are those ejection seats still functional? The T2 is cold. We have a uh, hot canopy, and then uh, we have parachutes, but we uh, they're static line. So huh. basically with the T2, our thought was that it's twin engine, it's hydraulically boosted controls with manual reversion. So if you lose your hydraulics, you can still fly the airplane. If you lose an engine, flies fine on one engine. So the chances of really having to eject out of the T2, probably very, very, very rare. And so we do have the ability to jettison the canopy. So that's easy. We get the canopy out, 
gets slowed down, and then we can bail over the side, and we've got static line, meaning the ripcord is attached to the airplane, so when you jump, it automatically deploys the chute. Then you get out that way. In the A4, you're going fast. You can't get out of the airplane. The cockpit is really small, and we do have an operational zero-zero ejection seat in that airplane that we keep up to date. And if we ever had to use it, I'm pretty confident it would work just fine. Wow. Well, and again, anyone who is unfamiliar with Paul's background or his Warbird Heritage Foundation should go over to warbirdheritagefoundation.org and also check us out on Patreon where we have a happy hour discussion, just a casual discussion on the foundation and Paul's experiences, which are really amazing. So getting back to the A1, he talked about the armor, which I imagine you probably left in yours because for weight and balance, but I don't know. But what about those 15 weapon stations? Any of yours? Still functional? Do you do anything with that? Our airplane, and you can see it on our website, our airplane is painted up in the livery of the 6th Special Operations Squadron out of Pleiku, Vietnam. And that was one area where they had the Sandy Squadrons there. We have 15 hardpoints under the wing. The, the, the centerline hardpoint, we have a 300-gallon uh, drop tank for fuel. And then the outboard, the seven on the left, seven on the right, every single one of them has an example of an armament that was used in Vietnam. So we have 20 millimeter cannons. We have a 7.62 minigun. We have Mark 82 bombs with Davies and Cutter fuses on them, which we can explain. We don't have a napalm canister. We have CBU 14, those cluster bomb units. Uh, we've got a Willie Pete bomb, white phosphorus. So we have an example. They're not real, obviously. Mm-hmm. But we have an example of just about all of the armaments that the Sky Raider uh, had at its disposal uh, in Vietnam, and they had a lot. This airplane could fly for six hours, could carry 11,000 pounds of fuel and armaments, and, and it was just a beast and, and could <laughs> wreak a lot of havoc and destruction on the ground. And did I hear him right? 25,000 pounds? Yeah, the later models were about 25. Mine is uh, about 11,000 empty weight and then about 22,000 plus max takeoff weight. So it could literally carry its own weight in fuel and armaments. But I think when you get up to that 22,000, we fly ours very light. When you get up to that 22,000 pound, you're using all the runway and you're not climbing very fast. (laughs) Uh, You know, the airplane's working pretty hard. It's a big engine, it's 2,700 horsepower, big 18-cylinder radial engine. But even with that much horsepower carrying 22,000 pounds, it's a big workload. Yeah, George intimated that in the interview, and I was surprised by that. I thought maybe it would jump up a little faster, but I'm guessing it's quite a bit of torque, and uh, so it must be amazing to fly. Do you ever cross paths with the other A1 still flying? I think it was called the Proud American. Oh, yeah. That's uh, Bill Anders' son, Alan Anders, and I know him very, very well. We both fly for the Navy Legacy Flight Program. I fly the A4 and the T2 and, and our Corsair eventually this coming season, and then he flies the Sky Raider. It's a Navy Sky Raider. He flies that in the Navy Legacy Flight Program. So I know Alan very well. Very good guy. He comes from a a long tradition of phenomenal aviators. His brother Greg is a heritage flight pilot and Air Force guy. And then obviously Mm -hmm. his father was an astronaut. So know him quite well. That's a beautiful airplane. There's probably about six or eight Sky Raiders flying now and probably maybe four or five single-seaters. And that's probably more more like about 12, maybe four or five single-seaters and six or eight fat faces or multi-seaters. 
I didn't realize there was that many going. So that's good. People have a, hopefully a chance to see these out there in action. Getting back to the ordinance real quick, though, wasn't there a picture of an A1 with a toilet strapped to one of the stations or something like that? There was, yeah. Apparently, uh, some innovative crew chief or mechanic decided that it might be kind of fun to drop a toilet uh, on these guys. <laughs> so he rigged up an attachment uh, underneath one of the hard points and had it actually had a, a toilet that they could actually drop <laughs> on one of their missions. I don't know if they actually ever did it or not, but there's a very famous picture of a Sky Raider sitting in a revet with the toilet hanging off one of the hard points. Oh, gosh. That's crazy. Well, I guess maybe they couldn't find a kitchen sink, which would have made the point, but maybe they were also trying to send a message to their adversaries. But, oh, goodness. I guess the only thing, looking back at my notes with George, is that I forgot to ask him about strengths and weaknesses, although I think the listeners and I can draw our own conclusions from everything we've heard. But what else did we either cover that you want to amplify a little more, Paul, or not cover that the listeners need to know about the A1 Sky Raider? Well, I think the Sky Raider, George, and you guys covered it pretty well. I mean, originally it was used, as we know, as a carrier-based ground attack airplane in, in Korea. It was sort of repurposed when it got to Vietnam. And that repurposing fit the bill so well with this airplane. I mean, it's rugged, it's sturdy, uh, solid. It can stay on station for a long period of time carry tons of ordnance, and it saved a huge number of lives in Vietnam. And so you couldn't design an airplane from scratch and make it more suited to the search and rescue mission that it accomplished in Vietnam. So it's a great airplane with a great history, fun to fly. It's not real fast. I'll tell you one thing, the best part about the airplane is not necessarily flying it, it's taxiing it around and folding and unfolding the wings. <laughs> it's so much fun. Uh, so when you're taxiing around, it's almost like you're riding on a Harley. It's got this big, giant 2,700-horsepower engine, and it's just purring, and you're taxiing down the taxiway. It's just like you're rumbling along in a little Harley or something, and, and then you get to fold those big wings, and it's pretty fun. Oh, I bet. Well, that must be something. I still hope our paths will cross some time where I can have a chance to check out some of those aircraft because this is, as I said in the interview, one of my childhood favorites. And I mean, I'm sure I've seen one if there is one on the Midway or wherever they're on display in various museums, but I've, I've never really seen one in action. So we'll have to uh, add that to our list, Paul. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. And thanks again to George Merritt and all the brave souls he represents so well in his many books, which we will again link to in the show notes for this episode. Just such an amazing aircraft. And I know he and I could have gone on and on, and I'm sure you and I could too, Paul, but you know, we want to be respectful of everyone's time. So as we begin to wrap up then, we want to thank our new Patreon supporters, and that includes Strike Leads Eric Morrow, Ty Reddy, and Mission Commander Matt McDonough. And in fact, one of our dedicated patrons, Chris Whiting, turns 40 this week. So from all of us here at the show, happy birthday, Chris. But as I mentioned earlier, I've got a little secret there. I've got a decade on you. I just hit my half century mark this past week myself. And so thanks to everyone who kindly posted birthday wishes on our Facebook page. And the views expressed in this presentation, you will recall, are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that'll do it for this week. Paul, thanks again. You're becoming a regular around here. We appreciate you coming and lending your expertise and recency with the A1 Skyraider. Well, it's always a lot of fun, Jello. Enjoyed discussing this stuff with you. So. Outstanding. Well, thanks so much. And for everyone else, be well. We'll see you back here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.